We just finished up Romans chapter 1, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the hypocritical judgment that Paul uh, attacks. In chapter 1, we'll do a quick summary of what we've been looking at. In the first half of chapter 1, up through verse 17, He gives us the theme of the book, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, he is separated unto the gospel of Christ. Verse 2, it's not something new. This is what was promised before by the prophets in the Old Testament. And it concerns, verse 3, his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and humanity and declared to be the son of God with power, his divinity. And then... Paul says that he had received grace and apostleship to bring this gospel to all the nations. He writes to those in Rome in verse 7 who are called to be saints. He thanks God for their faith that's spoken of everywhere. And in verse 9 he says that God is his witness. that He serves with his spirit in the gospel of his son and spoke of his prayers in their behalf. In his desire to come to be with them according to the will of God, to impart to them spiritual gifts, and also of the mutual communion, verse 12, that they had with each other. That he had desired this at times and had been hindered thus too. But in verse 14, he explains that he is a debtor both to the Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise, that he is ready to preach the gospel in the capital there in Rome. Because he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then he says that in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. This gospel shows how a man can be made right with God. And this gospel shows that God in the way that he saves men, is right and just as well in all of his doings. He makes the switch then from verse 17 to verse 18. In 17, we have righteousness revealed. In 18, we have the wrath of God revealed from heaven. And what we saw in this he begins on a long section in which he shows why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's going to prove all men are in need of this gospel. All men are guilty before God. And so he, he seems to focus upon the nations at first and he explains really the character of humanity and why it is that men are underneath the judgment of God. Because in verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. They can clearly see, he says, in verse 20, God's eternal power and Godhead. So they have no excuse. All men know that there is a God, regardless of what they say. In verse 21, it says that, that while they knew him, and all men know him, they didn't glorify him. They were not thankful for that knowledge. And they exchange the incorruptible God for that which is corruptible. They exchange 
false gods for the true God, corruption, maggots for divinity, gold. And therefore they are under the judgment of God. So that God gives them over, we saw in verse 24 and 26 and 28. God gives them over, take charge of yourselves then, and we'll see how you do. He gives them over to vile affections. He gives them over to a reprobate mind. And lastly, what do they know? Verse 32, they know the judgment of God is coming. And the reason they know the judgment of God is coming is because God has given to every man a conscience. And in that conscience, though it is flawed because of the fall, still they have a conscience that tells them right and wrong, approving or disapproving of them. And because they see the built-in judgment upon sin here upon the earth, it, it can be calculated. It is regularly seen. The evil consequences of a lifestyle of sin. They intuitively know that there is a judgment day and that God has put in us a sense of justice, of right and wrong. And it's why... In our fallen state, we want vengeance at times, don't we? Men want vengeance. Why, even the Christian is told, don't take vengeance. Why? There's a sense of justice, and justice doesn't always get fulfilled here upon the earth. And so God says it needs to be kept under the control of offices. Otherwise, it will be wild uh, craziness if there's not government. So the ugly... Reality is, is that we know there's a God. We know that he's glorious by what we see in creation. We know that we're not honoring him. We're exchanging him for a God that we can create and we can control. We know we're in trouble. We deserve death. Though we don't want to admit it until somebody forces that truth of logic upon us so that they continually do that which guilts their conscience and ruins themselves. They take pleasure in others doing the same thing because somehow that justifies in their darkened understanding their own evil because others are doing it too, as if these others are the rule by which they should judge their lives. But it's not. How hard is it to get mankind to establish God as the rule in their minds? doesn't happen outside of regeneration. God is the standard, not man. No man is the standard, save the man Christ Jesus. He is the standard. He is not only the standard, but he is also the judge. So that what I want us to look at this morning in these first few verses is Paul's attack upon hypocritical judgment. Number one, that God's judgment reaches to the soul. It's a soulish thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's not, not just outward judgment. Number two, that God's judgment is always aligned, it's always aligned with the truth. Number three, nobody escapes God's judgment. And number four, ignoring God's judgment. All you're doing is treasuring up wrath. And that our duty is, is to repent. That's our duty. So Paul is changing gears here, and he says in chapter 2 and uh, verse 1, Therefore, therefore, and all you Bible students, you know, you ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? 
So the therefore means that there's going to be some sort of conclusion. There's going to be maybe a further explanation of a previous thought or a change of thought. Therefore, he says, knowing thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, because you judge, you that judge are doing the same things. Therefore. So first of all, who is Paul talking to? He says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, anthropos, the general word for man, humankind, men or women, generic, whoever you are, whoever you are. There's debate over who he's talking to in these first verses. But the reality is, is whoever you are, whoever you are that sit in judgment upon others when you are doing the same thing. All who are passing judgment upon others. Why does Paul say that the man who is sitting in judgment upon others has no defense? It is because, is it because God hates for us to use our brain and powers of discernment as we look at others? No. Is it because God never wants us to consider the words and behavior of others and discern whether it's right or wrong? No. The kind of judgment Paul is considering is that one sitting in judgment upon others as though we were the ordained judges by God on account of our own holiness. We don't have that position. Jesus Christ is the ordained judge, as the scripture says, that man by which God will judge the world. We are not judges in matters of motive, since the inner life we cannot know. It's not possible. That is a God work. This is a finite, flawed, and hypocritical judgment that Paul is speaking of. Sitting in judgment upon others for sins which you are doing yourself. Thinking you are better than they. Being very aware and clear on their sins and very fuzzy about your own. Ellicott writes, the words in the Greek translated by judge and condemn related to each other, much the same way as the summing up of a judge is related to the verdict. In the first, a sentence is in the process of being passed, but there is still a possibility of acquittal. In the second sentence, there has definitively been given a sense adverse to the accused, guilty. Another, rather strictly, the other, thy fellow, thy neighbor. Benson writes, the apostle, having shown that the Gentiles could not entertain the least hope of salvation, according to the tenor of the law of nature, which they violated, proceeds next to consider whether the law of Moses would give the Jews a better hope, an inquiry which he manages with great address. Because he knows that as he is writing out the sins of the world and listing out all of these sins that involve lust and anger and covetousness and all the different basic areas of sin. He knows that there are going to be those who think in their own mind, yes, those are terrible things. Those people belong under the judgment of God. But they will also not properly judge themselves 
And they will think that, yes, this terrible rendering of the sins of the world is what God will judge, but not myself, but not myself. So that Christ in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the mote in the eye. That's just for believers. Where you got to get the log out of your own eye before you can discern what's in somebody else's. Because we have a tendency to have real clear vision concerning everybody else and lousy vision, myopic vision for ourselves. The Pharisees saw the multitudes that followed the Lord Jesus Christ as, quote, those that know not the law, rabble. Easily manipulated. They should know they manipulated them. And so the emphasis given in the Gospels on publicans, sinners, adulterers, demon-possessed, the parable of the prodigal son, here are these whom God was saving and was bringing out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Jews sat, especially the leadership, sat in judgment upon such people. These people were not fit for the kingdom of God, not possible to be a part of the kingdom of God, because they didn't obey the law like the Pharisees obeyed the law. And the Pharisees were very strict. Outwardly, the Apostle Paul said, as we have seen, Apostle Paul said, I was blameless in the law. You couldn't have put your finger on me and said, you're doing something wrong. But you couldn't see my heart either. And until God touched his heart, he went on, with that same idea. The bigotry of the Jews was dealt by Christ blow after blow. When he was in Nazareth delivering his sermon, and he talked about the fact that in Elijah's days, Elijah went to the widows who were Gentiles, not Jews. And they wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. The Roman centurion, who was a good man, they said, He built a synagogue for us. He has an interest in these things. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the half-breeds. It was the half-breed that actually showed neighborliness. Not the Jews in the parable. The Samaritan leper, the half-breed leper, who came back and was thankful for what God had done while the others were not. And then answered the Jews and said to him, say we not well that you are a Samaritan and you have a devil, they said to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was their attitude and they sat in judgment upon Christ himself. Condemning as hypocrites. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you are children of murderers. You wish to take great pride in the fact that you have the oracles of God and further in this chapter chapter 2 he's going to say you're resting in the law you're resting in the law and they rested in their circumcision but he argues throughout the book that their circumcision just brought them into obligation to obey the law and it would actually bring them into condemnation because they didn't obey the law oh Jerusalem Jerusalem Thou who stones the prophets and kills those that I send to you. And so he says in chapter 2, Therefore, 
you are inexcusable, unapologetic. You have no apologetic. You have no defense, he says. You have no defense, O man, whoever you are that judges. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. As a nation, they did the same things. As a nation, they did the same sins as the Gentile nations. Despite their teaching, despite their synagogues, despite the fact that they had hundreds and hundreds of years of the blessing of God upon them. And you can read the histories of the times in which they were committing all those same sins, actually, as a nation. Secondly, as individuals who had a greater accountability and light from God, they should know. Because God's law reaches the heart. It's not just the outward action. Christ had taught that, which was part of the reason he fell out of favor with carnal men who were in leadership in those times, is because he taught that the law of God reached the soul. It reached the heart. It was not just the outward behavior. So we have in the list of the Gentiles fornication. And Christ says, and you lust in your heart after women. That's what that is. And we have wickedness in the list. And Christ said, out of your heart proceeds these things. Because you have a depraved heart that you have not taken full awareness of in your theology. Covetousness. And that was rampant with the leadership of the day. Malice displayed toward Christ. Envy, why they gave Christ up to the leaders. Because they couldn't bear his popularity or his gifts. Debate, they thrived on that. Backbiters, they took counsel together to deny the Christ and to seek to kill him. Haters of God, Christ said, if you hate me, you hate God. Proud, they said, we are not like other men. Disobedient to parents pronouncing Corbin so they could escape the responsibility that they had toward their parents. Inventors of evil, seeking false witnesses to condemn Jesus Christ just like Jezebel did in order to get Naboth's vineyard. Unmerciful, unmerciful. If you looked up in the dictionary in the times of the Lord Jesus Christ, their picture was next to unmerciful. That's what they were. God does not judge as we judge because he is not limited like we are limited. Our judgments are limited to our sight. His judgments are not. He is the God who sees the soul. He's the God who reaches the heart. You know, God is, we have dealt with, in fact, in our Sunday school hour, we dealt with works and good works, which Titus talks about. He emphasizes much the good works of a Christian. That out of our hearts should come much good works. But there is also that reality and that truth within the word of God. God has ordained all that comes to pass. God will accomplish all his holy purposes. If you never get involved in the kingdom of God, you're not going to hurt God. It is a privilege to be a part of or to exercise our gifts in or to do good works 
for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does not need us. We need him. It's a privilege to be a part. And so that the emphasis of Holy Scripture is the spiritual man. The emphasis is the heart. The summary of all the law is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. Because that is where God is truly honored. All of us can do things outwardly in a pretense. All of us can do that. We've all done that, that we've had to repent of. Dead works. So that true religion is that which first begins in the heart and then flows out of the heart. And when it flows out of the heart, it's not for me and it's not for show. And I can go to my closet and pray and I can do my charity without being seen. And I don't need to be patted on the back because none of that is important. What is important is my relationship to Jesus Christ. And so there is that emphasis. And the judgment of God reaches to that. The judgment of God comes to the soul, to your spirit. Where are you at? That's the question for the sinner. Where are you at in your soul? I'm not interested in your works and the things you do. I don't don't care about that. You don't need to tell me that. Where are you at in your soul? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you trusting fully in his grace and his shed blood? Because you know that nothing you do can save you. So our judgments are limited to our sight, to our knowledge, and even to our memory of our sight and knowledge. God's judgments are not. God's judgments are perfect. They are complete. He has perfect sight, perfect knowledge, and perfect memory. And it reaches to the soul. And so what Paul is saying is that you are condemning yourself Because you are sitting in judgment. And the reason you're sitting in judgment is because you do know there is right and wrong. But in sitting in judgment the way you are, without the consideration of your own soul, you're condemning your own soul at the same time. Because you're doing these same things. Because it's more than the outward, it reaches to the heart. And that the judgment of God is according to truth. He says in verse 2, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to the truth against them that commit such things. It's according to the truth, not to outward show. It's according to the truth because God can't be bribed. It's according to the truth because God can't be tricked. Like we tricked our parents at times growing up and didn't tell them what we were really doing. And God doesn't forget Everything is written down. That's why in Revelation the books are opened. And God will not give the Jews a pass. All have sinned, falling short of the glory of God. The judgment of God is not according to our delusions. We've got a lot of delusions going on these days. Publicly, and there's always been a lot privately. But the judgment of God is not according to your finite mind or your delusions about something. It is about the truth of what actually is true. It's not according to our victimhood. 
It's not according to privileges, perhaps, that we are granted to by men who do not hold us accountable. It is judged, we are judged according to divine reason, divine law, according to the perfections of God, the light of nature that has been given to us, the light of revelation that the Jews had and that we have that make us more responsible. God's judgment is going to square with the facts, the expositor Greek commentary said. Yes, it will. God's judgment will square with the facts. We're not used to that. It's hard enough for us to judge ourselves. Paul says of his own ministry, he said, I can't even judge my own ministry. That'll be taken care of in the end. I don't even have that capability. We don't. That's why we ask God to help us. Give us light. Thirdly, no one escapes the judgment of God. And so he says in verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things, and you do the same, that you are going to escape the judgment of God? Because nobody is an exception to the rule. None of us are. Growing up in Jerusalem didn't make you an exception to the rule. Growing up in Bethlehem didn't make you an exception to the rule. Doing good humanitarian work does not make you an exception to the rule. God cannot approve of evil, and God sees it all. Joining the Jehovah Witnesses and going door to door and doing all of your duties within their little group will not make you an exception to the rule or the Mormons. Being a great critic of others will not make you an exception to the rule. You who do the same sin will fall under God's judgment, he says, no matter who you are. You may be the high priest's son. It does not make you an exception to the rule. You may be the preacher's son. It does not make you the exception to the rule. You may have a long list of people that you can trace all the way back to the Reformation, and they had nothing but preachers in that line, and it doesn't make you an exception to the rule. Makes you have a great heritage. Makes you responsible but it doesn't make you an exception to the rule. So the question is, if you ignore these things, what's going to happen? Ignoring the judgment of God only treasures up wrath for you. He says in verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, treasuring up wrath, treasuring up wrath. He says in verse 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, you treasure up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath. That's a good word. It's the word for thesaurus. It's a thesaurus. You know what a thesaurus is? It's a treasure of words. So this word has to do with treasuring, gathering something up. When we have a thesaurus, it treasures up for us, gathers up all the wonderful words that there are in their relationships to each other. And what he's saying is that if you ignore the judgment of God and if you ignore the goodness of God, which ought to lead you to repentance, you are treasuring up wrath, gathering it up. 
which means those who have more light have more responsibility and shall have a greater judgment in the end. There's no doubt about that. Are you storing up wrath for the final judgment? We all store things up. We're we're all storing up words. Scripture says that all of our thoughts and words and deeds are all known of the Lord and God can bring them all before us. But we don't want to treasure up certain words from God. And these are the words you don't want to treasure up for yourself, to have for yourself at the end of time. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. You did it not to the least of these, my brethren, so you did it not to me. What soul is storing up the wrath of God? It is those who despise the goodness of God. He says in verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his rich goodness? Do you despise his rich goodness, his graciousness to you, that God has been gracious? Do you despise that? Men do. Men do. God's moral excellence, his glorious character, his posture of love toward the creation, and how he expends himself for the creation in love because he loves his creation. Do we despise that? The goodness of the Lord. Do we despise, secondly, his forbearance? The word means his self-restraint. Does God use self-restraint? Certainly does. He does. And you know, because God uses self-restraint, and he doesn't immediately smack us down, men often see him as weak then because of that. So my wife may have been wondering why I was listening to this song this morning. It reminded me, of the fact that this is the same way it is with men. When you are a man of self-restraint, other men who are blowing up and doing all these other things see you as weak because you use self-restraint and you don't blow off at the mouth and you don't blow off with your fists and all of that. So, Kenny Rogers, the coward of the county, if you know the song. So he talks about a a boy named Tommy, whose daddy died in prison. And he said, promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. It won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. You don't have to fight to be a man. The story goes on until his Becky is gang raped by the Gatlin boys. And then the years of self-control... It is time for him to act. And that's, you know, as the story goes, and then he beats the snot out of those three guys and leaves them all over the floor. Okay. Not giving you a full recommendation on all that, okay? This is an illustration. God has self-constraint, self-restraint. And it's not because he's weak. It's because he is gracious. And he can bide his time. 
But as we saw this morning in the Sunday school hour concerning the lake of fire, which is the final destination of all who are cursed, it is that gathering together of the curse in one place. You may think God is weak because he doesn't immediately act upon your sin. He is not. And those that despise the forbearance of God, those that despise his self-restraint, are treasuring up for themselves wrath, which at some point, if they do not turn from their sin, it will be released upon them unmitigated. And it will be far worse than any man can do. That's why we don't have to take vengeance. We can leave that to proper authorities because God can deal out vengeance far better, far wiser, and with a greater completeness than we ever would. Thirdly, he says, you also those who are despising the long-suffering of God, that he is slow to anger, that God is slow to anger. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Now, civil governments are civil magistrates. If there is an evil, they are to deal with it, and they are to deal with it swiftly. Because if you don't, then men take that as a weakness, and they take it as Oh, I guess they approve of it since they're not punishing me for it. So that's what he's teaching us there. But the fact of the matter is, is that God, in his great graciousness, he suffers long with us and with his creation. If he did not, we would not exist. And there are those who despise this long-suffering. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We went through this epistle not too long ago. Second Peter, chapter 3. Well, let me get into second. I'm trying to read his first. Second Peter, chapter 3. He says there's going to be scoffers in verse 3, and they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was from the beginning of creation. Because the warning is going out, just like Noah warned those for year after year after year, and because God didn't immediately send it down, they despised his patience. They despised the fact that he was Slow to anger. Men still do it. Oh, you've been talking about a second coming. You've been talking about a final judgment for millennia. Yes, we have. And yes, it has been talked about that long. And if you despise it and the word of God, the truth of God concerning it, what you're doing is treasuring up wrath for yourself. On that day, when the deluge is going to hit, And it will sweep you away. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he is what? He is long-suffering to usward, to the elect, 
not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will be a thief in the night. And it will be a deluge which no man can stop. Just as when you watch your weather channel and those kinds of things and you see a a tsunami come and it hits the shore and nothing can stand in its presence. It's just swept away. So, who is it? Who is it that's storing up wrath? They are those who despise God's graciousness, despise his self-restraint, despise the fact that he's slow to anger. And that therefore they just live on their lives and think, think of God in a despising way. And he goes on to say, back to Romans, but after thy hardness, you have hardened your heart. An impenitent heart, it's gotten harder and harder and harder because we know that as you are given light and you reject the light and you reject the light and you reject the light, you are hardening your heart. And so that's why today's the day of salvation. Today is the time to turn to the Lord, not another day. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Will it come in our lifetime, this final judgment of God? Maybe not. Doesn't matter. We're going to him, whether he comes to us in this generation or not. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. But note in verse 4, he says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, are you not aware? Are you unaware, the text says, actually. Are you unaware that the goodness of the Lord is well adapted to lead you to repentance? Are you not well aware that the goodness of God should lead you to repentance? Isn't that true? Isn't it a part of life? Turn to Romans chapter 12. Paul's going to talk about this in another fashion in Romans 12 when he tells us in verse 19 not to avenge ourselves but give place to wrath because the vengeance belongs to the Lord. And he goes on to say, therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him, and if he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what he's saying is that in the course of human life, and according to human nature, that if you have an enemy who is abusing you, and you don't abuse him back, and you don't take vengeance on him, but actually, in a Christian manner, imitating God, you do good to him instead, because you can wait for God's judgment to come, that at times this is how evil is overcome because they become ashamed of themselves and convicted of the fact of what they are doing to someone who is treating them so well. Does it always happen? No, it doesn't. But it can. And it should. And we know that's right. So if that's true with human beings... So much more with God as well. If God is treating us well and God is being patient with us and God is restraining himself with us, 
Is it not logical that we would then repent and turn to him and receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he's arguing. That's what he's arguing. So, the duty then that God sets before us is repentance. Repentance. It leads you. It has a tendency. It's a design of the goodness of God to induce men to repent of their sins, not to lead them into deeper, more aggravated sin, Barnes says. The change of mind, the change of purpose, the turning around, the turning out of darkness into life, the turning away from ourselves to God, from our narcissism to the worship of God, forsaking sin, desiring the glory of God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This shows us how evil sin is, how powerful sin is. How addictive sin is. That a good God and a gracious God who daily loads us with benefits should be worked against rather than submitted to, loved, enjoyed, rejoiced in. And that this goodness of the Lord, as Barnes says, it is fitted to melt and soften the heart. Judgments often harden the sinner's heart and make him obstinate. But if, while he does evil, God constantly is doing him good, if the patience of God is seen from year to year while the man is rebellious, it is adapted to melt and subdue the heart, and it makes him all the more damnable if he just goes on his own way. The mercy of God is constant. It's constant. So to reject it, you have to reject it constantly as well. Every, every day you wake up, and there's the sun again. I was listening to the, the gulag, Solzhenitsyn's, um, which I know it can be a very depressing thing. But what was interesting is he talks about being transferred from one prison to another prison, and in that short time of transfer, he said, they commanded us to do this and they commanded us to do that, but they didn't command us that we couldn't look up. Yeah. And he said, for the first time, it was either in months or years, I saw the blue sky and it was springtime. And he said, my heart took courage. <laughs> because he said, there's the world and it's okay. It's still there. The sun's still going to rise. The sky is still going to be there. The faithful God is still upon his throne. You see, the mercies of God are everywhere. And they attack us everywhere in all of our senses, in all of our being. We know there is a God, and he is a good God. Barnes says from this passage, he remarks, the most effectual preaching is that which sets before men most of the goodness of God. Every man is under obligation to forsake his sins and turn to God. And there is no man who has not seen repeated proofs of his mercy and love. And I know men get caught up with some of the terrible things that have happened to them. But you know, so oftentimes when they talk about these things, it, it, it has to do with the curse. And it has to do with other men who are doing things to them. 
And I asked them, I said, why, why are you upset with God? It's the man that did that. And if it doesn't involve a man, then I have to explain to them, it involves the curse. That's why we have troubles. But that there is another world and that there is a height of glory that makes these things diminish in our own eyes, as Paul says to the Corinthians. So what should we understand about the judgment of God? We should understand it reaches your heart. God's judgment is something that, as he says in Hebrews, divides asunder the soul and spirit. It goes deeper and in such a way that we cannot do at all. So be honest with your God. There's no use not being honest with him. He is the one with whom you can pour out your heart. You know, you can pour everything out your heart to that God, giving yourself to him. And it's not like a human being who will walk away upset or confused or mad because of what you said and because of what you exposed yourself with. Everybody talks about being vulnerable. Being vulnerable to God is the best thing. So know that the, the judgment of God reaches the heart. So you've got to do heart work with God. Deal with God with your heart. Heart work with God. He's not interested in anything else. And understand... When you're, when you're thinking about the judgment of God, that God's judgment will be true and it will be righteous and it will be just. Some men get themselves all tied up in knots over what happened over here, what happened over here. This doesn't appear just to me. And something. Let me tell you this, that there are a lot of unjust things that happen on this earth. There's a lot of things that we can't understand, but that I go back and I fall back upon the fact that God is holy and just and good and right. And all of that, as the old timer said, it's all coming out in the wash and he's going to make it all right. He's going to make it all right because that's his character. He cannot do anything else. It's going to be according to truth. So that Christians who have been spoken against throughout the world, Christians who have been jailed wrongly, Christians who have been said that they were wicked and evil, vile things about them. All of that's going to get fixed. Thirdly, understand, nobody escapes the judgment of God. So that should not be your delusion. You want to escape the judgment of God? Come to Christ. <laughs> Christ did not escape the judgment of God. Because the elect could not be saved, and he escaped the judgment of God. It was not possible. Not my will, but yours be done. Is there another way? There's not another way. I'm good with that. This is the only way. He did it. And don't waste your time treasuring up wrath when instead, according to the Sermon on the Mount, you could... Lay up treasures in heaven that are things pleasing to the Lord. And just as the deluge of God's wrath will be unmitigated upon those who are wicked and 
who remain under the curse, the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a flood that is unmitigated. As the saints come into heaven, a flood, you will not stop and you won't want to stop for all of eternity. So put your hope and your trust in this gracious God. Don't play the hypocrite. Don't play the hypocrite. That's what Paul's dealing with, and he's going to deal with it, and he's going to deal with it some more in this chapter. He's like, waste your time with this hypocrisy, judging these people over here when you got the same problems. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. He is gracious. Let's complete our time together with a hymn.